and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you stories of American history and our past, often the scandalous darker side. And it is the spooky season, so we will get a little into uh, the horrors of American history today. But first, as always, I am Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are... Hello, Rebecca. Um, and we are just really excited to have you here. It is fall. It is a wonderful time of year in Washington, D.C. If you are not aware, we actually love fall because it's not so hot. And this is the time of year where we get to run a lot of ghosts and scandal tours. We actually run those year round, but we do an extra lot uh, this time of year. And they do book up and sell out. So if you're a local and you've been thinking about maybe doing a ghost tour and you want to do one around Halloween, go to dcbyfoot.com right now and check out the schedule because those tours do sell out. Don't wait to the last minute. But you can also take a ghost tour with us anytime because we like ghosty, scary stories. It makes history fun. It really does. We like the scandals. We like the, the odd, the macabre, the slightly <laughs> offbeat. That's our our niche. That is how I would describe myself. Um, a big thank you, as always, to, to our patrons who are out there supporting us. If you're not a patron, you're missing out on special patron-only episodes and other really cool perks. Um, so be sure to check it out if you're interested. There's a link in the show notes. Becoming a patron, but thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. Um, they make this possible, so we're very, very grateful to them. I am excited about this topic today, Rebecca. I am too. We're going to talk about witches, y'all, specifically witches in Salem, Massachusetts, which you have perhaps heard of. It's been a big thing in the pop culture. It's it's pretty big out there. If you've watched a Halloween movie or, you know, took an, a basic high school English class, you've maybe heard of Salem, Massachusetts. Yep, yep, yep. We will get further into the pop culture references a little later on, but it has a strong pop culture resonance. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, witches and let's just put the main lesson up front for everybody here. Here it is coming at you. It's all misogyny all the time. <laughs> Always some a little bit of religious confusion and a little bit of religious fervor, but basically the witch craze is misogyny a lot. So good times. Yeah, anytime we're really uh, punishing women for being outside the norm, there's a real strong sort of thread there of misogynistic activity. So witch crazes are not unique to Salem at all. You mean America didn't invent it? Did it's not, not American exceptionalism? It's not American exceptionalism, no. Um, I actually took an entire graduate course about witches. It was amazing. It goes on for hundreds of years in Europe, basically starting in like the 1400s and continuing past Salem into the mid-1700s. By this time, the witch craze is sort of starting to die off. So Salem is kind of towards the end of the big witch craze, but it goes on for a long time and it takes place sort of all over Western Europe. And then once they start to colonize the new world, kind of heads over to the new world and does a little bit here as well. It is a lot of women on the margins. They go after anyone who is sort of not playing their traditional role in society. Anyone who does not have a male protector or a male man telling them what to do, anyone who's poor. So we got widows, you got nonconformists, 
Uh, you have anybody who might today be considered gender non-conforming or uh, not particularly interested in men or too interested in men, anyone who's not playing their role or sort of stepping out of the, the main sexually, uh, anyone who is uh, not going to church regularly or at all, uh, really women who are not doing what they're supposed to do. That's a lot of the witch hysteria. There's usually little to no evidence because how could you right how could you um and it's usually tied to religion and it's it follows a relatively similar pattern hysteria hits a town accusations are made there's a trial some executions and then it blows over and it moves on to somewhere else and crops up somewhere else in about 300 years an estimated 40 to 60,000 people 80% of them women are going to be killed in this sort of pan-European witch hysteria. It is a big deal. It happens all around Europe, it, both Catholic and Protestant areas. It seems to be connected with the Reformation, but is by no means just linked to Protestants, although that is where it is in Salem. But it is basically over 80% women. And that says to me that it's women who are on the margins and not playing by the rules, quote unquote, uh, that they're expected to play by. So that's where we get witches. Uh, they very rarely rode broomsticks, I will mention. <laughs> I mean that we know of. Salem isn't even the only place in the new world. It's just the biggest and most famous, highest body count and in Salem, there are men, with spoiler alert, men get executed as well. And that makes it somewhat unusual. Generally, men are rarely accused and even less often are they executed or brought to sort of any sort of answer for a crime, not that there was a crime. Uh, rarely are they going to be involved in a, a victim role. Uh, this is just the biggest and it's the most famous and has gotten sort of a, a lot of press because of that. But it is no, by no means the only. Salem is on the North shore of Boston. It is gonna be part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And it is two smallish communities, Salem Town and then Salem, which is basically like Salem is the port. It's still there, it's still called Salem. Salem Town is today the neighboring town of Danvers. So it's two basic communities. And there's a bunch of different contexts here. So we're gonna start with the religious context. This is Puritanism. We did a whole episode about the pilgrims a while back. This is their their friends, their co-religionists. Uh, these are very, again, very strict. They are going to have strong influence from the Boston area, which is not far away. The church and the church fathers, if you've ever heard of Cotton or Increase Mather, they are a father and son pair of preachers that are going to be tangentially involved in what goes on in Salem. They're at the top of the religion heap there. Well, and when we're talking about religion, I think it's important that essentially that is the that is the government. Yes. The government is the religious structure. The religious structure is the governing body. And so it's it's not just a matter of, hey, this is our local church or, hey, this is our, our local preacher, the preacher from the town over. These are not just the religious leaders. They're the men who make decisions about taxes and boundaries and property and laws and everything. So um, it is not the way in which our government is structured today. No. And, you know, you got to remember there's like they're British and they're a British colony, but London's far away, man. It takes months to get a boat across. And so the idea that London can be in strict control of what's going on in the new world, like this is literally the reason they came to the new world is to kind of get away from like 
day-to-day decision-making by the British. These people want to be separate. They are more uh, adherent to doctrine than perhaps they think uh, the Church of England is back home. And so they want to do their own thing. Gender context, women are considered more sinful. I mean, yeah. (laughs) You know, just by virtue of being. (laughs) Obviously, yes. Original sin started with women. It's true. It's good times. Anyway, that is, that's sort of your gender context is very basic. Women are considered more sinful. Well, I mean, they're considered more sinful, but also women have very little power, right? They have very little power in the church. They do not have roles within the church as church leaders. They have very little roles in a civic sense, right? So they have very little power or recourse within the church or within any sort of law to fight back against any accusations that may come their way. And you're also getting, this is a community of of religious people, but it's also a community that have fled their homeland for a reason. And that's not always the same reason. Sometimes they just want to get away from a bad situation or whatever it is back home, and they're going to go along with this. So you have women who are not particularly interested in the Anglican church for whatever reason, and they're going to come over to the new world to sort of try to restart and resettle. Um, So there's that as well. Uh, The local context, there is two communities that have frequent disputes, and they seem to be, there's like two families uh, that other families seem to rally around. So you've got two sort of leading families, the Porters, which are wealthy merchants, and they're from the town, uh, and then the Putnams, who are farmers, and they are further out. They want less influence from the town. They feel a little uh, less than, and the Porters sort of lorded over everybody because they're rich and, and important, and the, the Putnams feel aggrieved and sort of left out. So you have local context, you've got a religious context, you have a gender context. This is all very exciting, and it's this sort of toxic brew of people who are clearly spending a little too much time together. And, you know, a little too much time together, and what is still, you know, it is still the new world. It is still becoming. This is still a place in development and whenever there's growth and change and new people and new ideas or an opportunity for things to change, people get freaked out. Yes. So this is going to be the 1690s. I should put a date here. This starts in the winter of 1692. This sort of begins with a new family arrives in town, the Paris family. Uh, The initial accusers are going to be the niece and daughter, respectively, of uh, Reverend Samuel Paris, who's the new, the sort of new family that has arrived. The niece, the daughter, sorry, is named Betty. She's nine. Her cousin, uh, Abigail, is 11, and their friend, Anne Putnam. So we have the Putnam family. There's a direct connection to the Putnam family. Anne Putnam is 12. They are going to exhibit strange and odd behavior, fits, screams, contortions. They're going to kind of contort themselves in a peculiar positions. They crawl under furniture, utter strange sounds and kind of scream randomly, which I don't know if you've spent any time around children of that age. They're just generally, they can be odd. I don't know. That's just seems, that doesn't seem particularly happy, but it's. Yes. It's fascinating, you know, because there's still yes. some question even today about what is the root cause of this. And there are a lot of things that if you go and read sort of the observations of their behavior, it doesn't seem out of the norm for a children yeah. or preteen girls, if you've ever spent time with preteen girls, especially in a group, because yeah. 
there's a group mentality. The more sure. someone does something, so that. not to mention, let's talk about food safety for a minute. Yep. Let's talk about the fact that there's any number of bacteria and fungus and thing, fungi that will grow and inhibit. And so there's very strong evidence that this is essentially food poisoning. This is a result of ingesting. There's um, many diseases. Lyme disease is another one. They're also engaging in some, I think, typical kind of preteen girl stuff. They're using a looking glass to try to see if they can figure out what occupation their future sweethearts may have have. Uh, They are said to have been engaging in essentially what girls have been doing in all time, trying to, you know, write out uh, the names of people they know. And so you get a little bit of, I think, what can happen when teenage girls are together. You get that sort of uh, elevated sense of emotion or elevated sense of life and what's what's happening. But I, I have to say, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist, but knowing the safety food element, that seems a very compelling theory to me. Yes. And there are girls will come, these girls will complain of being pinched and pricked with pins and the doctors examine them. And at the time can find no physical ailment. So nothing is physically wrong with them in the modern day. Like there have been hundreds of different causes that have been proposed, everything from Lyme disease to like, they were completely making it up. And it really, it could be any number of things. I think the food safety element is probably a good bet. It also could be Puberty is hard sometimes. And it, you know, it could be they saw one girl having some kind of fit, possibly epileptic fit, who knows, and that they just copied what was happening. Like there's, I think, a combination of some medical underlying cause and a little bit of like groupthink and hysteria here. Like I think that that's sort of the best that we can do. That is not how they saw it. I think a doctor in 1692 being like, I see no medical problem here probably isn't super reliable though. Also that, yes, I see no medical problem. Like these are girls at the cusp of puberty. Like that could be a factor here too. Again, we're not doctors, but there are any number of like underlying causes that could have done this, but it is seen at the time as blasphemous behavior. Freaky Reverend Paris has a reputation for being a hardliner. He comes to town and he's even more rigid than some of these already pretty rigid folks. So you can imagine when he sees his niece and his daughter acting this way, if you are a hardliner about this religious sort of view, he immediately is the one that's like, this is the work of the devil. Right. It's easy to jump right. You can see how they would jump right to that conclusion. The girls are going to accuse three women, three marginalized women. Yay. The first one they accuse is a woman named Tichuba, the Paris's West Indian enslaved woman. So he's not white. So here we go. First of all, marginalized. This is a predominantly, almost exclusively white community. And so Tichuba stands out. In fact, to the point we don't have a last name for her. Like there just doesn't seem to be one. Um, so you can already tell there's some racism happening here. The other two she accuses are both named Sarah which there's a lot of Sarah's Sarah good is a local vagrant and beggar. So she's clearly unhoused. She doesn't have a stable home situation. Uh, She is the implication is she's not young. Um, She's sort of dependent on people's charity. And Sarah Osborne is an elderly woman who does not attend 
church regularly. There is some evidence that she has some sort of physical ailments herself and has a dubious romantic past with a servant. So you've got like all three of your biggies right here. You have the other, you have fear of someone who is unhoused and uh, a vagrant, and you have a woman who doesn't attend church and has a dubious romantic past. So you've got like, this is all the heavy hitters right here. And I feel like these three women are in microcosm exactly what keeps has been replicating in different communities throughout this sort of witch craze. I don't think an accident that the, these girls reach out for these three people. They're the easiest targets. They're the easiest targets. They are not connected to important families. They're not connected to important men. They don't have the shield of a respectable man to protect them or to, you know, defend them. And so they are absolutely the three people that you would if this was the situation you were in. And of course, it's very easy for the town to go, absolutely, this is the cause of our distress. And you can see, you know, these three girls, something is happening. They can't define it. Someone wants answers. And so they throw people basically under the bus, the three most vulnerable people they can think of. You can see them panicking. You can see them pointing fingers, not to excuse them, because you certainly don't want to do that. But you, these are the three women that are the most vulnerable to something like that. Um, so pause here for misogyny sadness as we do. Um, all three are gonna initially claim innocence, although Sarah Good does accuse Sarah Osborne, so the vagrant, the, the, um, the unhoused woman, accuses the elderly non-religious woman of being involved in witchcraft. And eventually, Tichuba, under what I can only imagine is an immense amount of pressure, tells the judges just what they wanna hear. Right, we see this play out all the time. You are an enslaved person, you are being put under investigation, right? Uh, and at some point, probably an attempt to save her own skin is going to simply say exactly what she thinks they want mm -hmm. to hear or what, what she has to say. And it's we have evidence as circumspect in terms of like what she actually really ever said because it was not recorded by her in her own hands. So we have to keep that in mind too. And we also, there's probably a language barrier here. It doesn't seem that she could, was English was her, either her, not her first or her only, like her first language. So there's probably that as well. And honestly, I don't particularly blame Tichuba for telling them what they wanted to hear. She doesn't have a friend. Like at least Sarah Osborne and Sarah Good are shielded by the fact that they are part of this community. Even if they're on the margins of it, they are both white. They're both semi-known to the people in Salem. Tichuba is a servant. She has no family. She has no friends. She is already deeply exploited. I can see her very easily just telling them what they want to hear. I think we should mention, too, that she's from a part of the world believed to have been from Central America, but she's got a very different religious background. And some of her testimony involves animals. It involves dogs, a rat, a black rat, a yellow bird. Um, and so a lot of animal imagery that would not have been uncommon in the religious beliefs of Central America in this era. And so it just raises a lot of questions about what does she actually tell them and what is the context and what it, what does she think she's trying to convey versus what they interpret as her evidence. And so there's certainly some questions there as well that she's sort of perhaps even bringing in elements of an outside religion into this, which would be terrifying for them, but also to me raises questions about that sort of language barrier. Yes, very much. Tichuba is going to say that she danced with the devil and that she was forced by the devil to write her name on the devil's book. 
And when she was, she saw Good and Osborne's name also in the devil's book and seven other names she could not read. So basically what she's saying is she did what they accused her of doing. She saw the two other women that are accused. So she basically takes them down with her and that there were seven other names that she couldn't read. And so she's giving the, the court the idea that there are more people. We have a number of more people. So we have to go look for them too. So she's throwing as best she can, throwing the weight of suspicion onto other people as best she can. Very quickly, other women, young women begin to have fits too. So this is spreading. And they're going to accuse other older women, namely a woman named Rebecca Nurse and enemies of the Putnam family. So one of the early accusers is Ann Putnam. A bunch of the enemies of the Putnam family are going to be accused in this sort of initial wave. So to give us timeline here, the fits start at the end of January. Tituba is going to testify March 1st. May 27th, the trials begin for the accused. On June 2nd, a woman named Bridget Bishop, who had been accused 12 years earlier of witchcraft and found innocent at that time, will then be found guilty. I was going to say a little bit about Bishop, too, just because she so fits the profile. She's married three times. This is a woman with a allegedly sort of checkered sexual past. She is a widow at the time that she is accused and found guilty in this witch trial. Um, she does not have the protection of a husband. She just really fits kind of the perfect profile of someone who is not going to get out of this unscathed. Um, she is going to be put to death in Gallows Hill on June 10th. So this is happening. This is a little accelerating here. Um, about a month later, July 19th, five more convicted witches are hanged, including Sarah Good, one of the original people accused, Susanna Martin, Rebecca Nurse, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds. Uh, they're all going to be executed on July 19th. At this point, Good is going to tell the judge that she is no more a witch than he is a wizard, which I love. I love the idea of this woman just telling the judge what's what. And that doesn't save her. She is hanged too. August 19th, George Burroughs, the former Salem minister who is now in Maine, he is going to be accused of being their ringleader. They will hang him as well with four others. So this is a big deal. Suddenly we're hanging a man, a former minister. You can imagine this is all happening in the summer and everybody's freaking out. And this is a relatively small community. They're going to bring this guy who is now in Maine uh, and they're going to hang him as well. They are going to hang a couple other people with him. John Proctor, Martha Carrier, George Jacobs, Sr. John Willows. They also convict a woman named Elizabeth Proctor, who's married to John Proctor. John Proctor gets hanged. Elizabeth Proctor is pregnant. And so she is temporarily spared. I talk about for a moment my absolute like the one that sort of boggles my mind in terms of the most insane accused person which is Dorothy Good she is four years old she is accused of being a witch <sighs> she's indeed the daughter of Sarah Good so you can imagine to a woman who's in a desperate situation also has this young child but the testimony the charge against her is that she tried to choke and bite Ann Putnam now, I don't know if you spent time with a four-year-old. Right. 
like, let alone what other things might be going on. And so the authorities questioned four-year-old Dorothy Good, and under duress, she agreed with the accusation that her mother was a witch and that Dorothy had been a witness to this. So you can imagine four-year-old who's been separated from her mother for weeks as part of the trials and everything finally confesses at four years old, what can you possibly confess to? She is only going to be imprisoned only imprisoned. She's imprisoned for about 10 months, but she is spared. But this is the the level to which the insanity is going, that as these things go on, people are finding any opportunity to make an accusation, uh, to weed out enemies, to simply have power, right, to wield power. And I think there's something to be said for those that are launching these accusations, that in a realm where young women typically have no power, they now have an incredible amount. Yes, I think that that's worth, definitely worth mentioning. And this is spooling out quickly, particularly given that their judges have to come from Boston and they're kind of going back and forth to Boston and it's not like today where you could take the train. Like this is spooling out very quickly. Uh, August 19th, like I mentioned, George Burroughs, the former minister, is hanged with four others. As he is being hanged, he recites the Lord's Prayer, which actually causes folks to wonder whether he's innocent because it was said that if you were actually a witch, you would not be able to recite the Lord's Prayer fully and from memory and he does and so people are like wait a minute maybe we've executed the wrong guy maybe starting in september is there's a several people september 6th 7th 8th 9th uh 14th 16th 17th they're all going to be uh separate people are tried and found guilty so the court is proceeding relatively quickly through september uh they are going to be tried and uh, await charged await and awaiting sentencing on september 19th they are going to press giles corey to death which is probably one of the things you've heard about about Salem. Both Giles Corey and his wife are both actually going to be convicted. Giles Corey refuses to be tried before God and country. Like he refuses to be, uh, to enter a plea. To take part in this sham. Right. He refuses to like dignify this. And is going to be pressed to death, which is exactly as terrible as you're thinking. They're going to, over the course of like a day and a half, put large stones on top of him and basically crush him, which sounds terrible. On September 22nd, his wife, Martha Corey, and seven others convicted people will hang. So there's uh, several of them, including Mary Eastie, Alice Parker, Ann Pruditor, Margaret Scott, Wilmot Reed, Samuel Wardle, and Mary Parker. They're all going to be hanged on September 22nd. As this is happening, this is also spreading to other towns in the area. So this is not just confined to Salem. News is traveling to Boston. It's traveling to all the sort of Massachusetts Bay, the colonies that sort of whole big area, Massachusetts Bay colony up in that area. It's traveling throughout the area. And other towns are getting wind of this. Other towns are sort of having their own sort of mini uh, hysteria. So the hysteria is very quickly spreading. And October 29th, the governor is going to step in. He says, he uh, writes to the council, the Privy Council, the King and the Queen, saying that he has stopped the proceedings, basically because there's danger that innocent people might be exposed uh, and the evidence is pretty bad. But also his own wife has been accused. So let's just, you know, put this into context. This has been really going on since March. There have been dozens of people facing these accusations, jail, executions, and the governor steps in mm. just at the point 
where his own wife faces an accusation. Yep. And says, oh yeah, no, I actually think this court's pretty illegitimate. We need to, we need to stop doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Look at this. Yeah. And so he's going to stop the Oyer and Terminer court and release many of the accused from prison and prohibit further arrests. He's also going to order that a superior court, sort of a higher court, continue to hear cases. So essentially what he's doing is a couple of things. First of all, he's obviously stopping this because at this point it has affected his own self-interest, i.e. his wife. Secondly, he's stopping the sort of more local uh, adjudication of this and saying that there needs to be a superior court that handles this. But we also need to like cool down a little. Like everybody needs to take a little break. We need to take deep breaths. The date here is not insignificant. The end of October, first of all, is harvest season. So November is when we're going to be doing like the harvesting and things. That's going to be pretty important. And then we get into the holidays and then it's cold. And so basically what he's telling everybody is, look, we're going to take a little break here for a little while because we got actually other things to do, including our economics and uh, self-interest. And the Superior Court's going to hear these cases, but not until the beginning of the new year. So the end of January and February 1693. What that does inadvertently is it gives the hysteria a time to burn itself out. It literally freezes, essentially. And so it gives everybody a chance to take a deep breath, get distracted by other things. Uh, They sort of move on. And essentially, by the time the Superior Court starts to meet in the new year, only three people are convicted by the superior court and their sentences are all gonna be commuted. So they don't actually get executed. The executions are over as of the end of uh, September. So this is starting to like burn itself out. Yeah, and one big thing that I think is interesting about the governor sort of turning it over to a superior court is that they will deem spectral evidence inadmissible. So prior to this point, you could submit as evidence specters. Things you said you saw and that no one else has to see or support. So you can imagine that a lot of the evidence, as we were sort of noting earlier, is really does not exist. There's no actual evidence. And this is one of the differences between sort of local adjudication versus a more structured court is that they're going to say, yeah, no, we're not going to deal with spectral evidence. If, If somebody did something, you have to be able to prove it. I'm pretty quick. That's hard to do. Yes, it's hard to do because it is, in fact, actually made up. So it's really flimsy at best. And I think partly like I don't I don't want to go too hard on the governor because I feel like he gets involved partly because his wife is accused, but also because I think that that drives home to him that things are going off the rails at this point, like things are a little out of control and somebody needs to rein this in. Well, and there, I think you're absolutely right about the fact that it's hitting up on harvest this season. The idea that like these these towns and communities, people are going to clash. They're going to quarrel. Not everybody's going to like each other. You're trying to, you know, sort of carve a community out of nothing. And people will have disputes about property and, and business and control. And if you're a governor, you can't get involved in every little petty disagreement. But then there's the sense of, okay, if I don't step in, if we don't put a stop to this, our colony is going to disintegrate. We have to work together, right? We have to survive the winter. We have to harvest. We have to have economic activity. Um, and I, I do think that he he is coming from a good place there, that for the good of, of the whole, there has to be some, some limitation. <laughs> yeah, there has to be some, we have to figure this out. We can't continue to let this spool out into the 
to our own detriment. And also, I feel like the idea that there have been so several people hanged in all 19 people are hanged and Giles Corey is pressed to death. Five more will die in custody. So that's that's a pretty big death toll. That's over 25 people. Several of them are men. And so you're seeing a substantial number of people, like a big percentage of the town that are involved in this. And I feel like the governor has this idea that we need to like press the pause button here, or somehow figure out how to short circuit this. Yeah, you got maybe about 7,000 people living between sort of the town, the port and surrounding areas. 25 is not insignificant Mm -mm. when you're talking about a few thousand people. Right, right. This is not the, the sort of large town that you think of today. This is not that many people. And so it burns itself out. The public response to this continues, but the la- and the last trial will be held in May of 1693. By this time, the sort of the teeth have gone out of the interest in prosecution. The sort of uh, urgency has burned itself out. But this rattles the town of Salem and by extension, the sort of entire Massachusetts Bay Colony all the way through Boston. This is going to rattle them for a long time. Uh, in 1697, in January, so four years later, The colonial legislature declares a day of fasting for the tragedy and families of the accused are going to spend decades trying to see their loved ones exonerated, sort of sort of plead their case uh, that they were innocent. This is going to be kind of continues to be a big deal in 1702. So a few years later, the courts declare these trials unlawful because, again, they rely on this really spotty spectral evidence. Uh, In 1711, the court restores rights and good names and provides compensation for families. So basically says, oops, our bad. You guys are okay now, even though you're dead. Bummer. Um, And provides some sort of compensation. They actually provide a decent amount of money to the families of those who have been accused. And Anne Putnam... Poor Ann Putnam. She is going to, in 1706, publicly ask for permission. And she's kind of very much the sort of bad guy of all this. She had been about 12 when the initial accusations happened. She says that she has not acted out of malice, uh, but claims she had been deluded by Satan into denouncing innocent people. And uh, she mentions Rebecca Nurse in particular. She is going to plead for forgiveness and to be reinstated into the community. And that is going to lead a lot of the other accusers to follow suit. Uh, and it's sort of very clear, the sort of underlying, te- the underlying story here is that Ann Putnam is very much influenced as a kid by this rivalry that's going on between her family uh, and the other family in town, the quarters. Uh, so the implication is that she imbibed a little too much of this family feud that's kind of going on. So the in 1711, they reversed the judgment and they authorize the amount of 578 pounds and 12 pence uh, to be divided amongst the survivors and the relatives of those accused. Most of these accounts will be uh, settled within a year, although Philip English has extensive claims that are not settled for a few um, years later. Uh, The members of the Salem Church are going to reverse excommunications of both Rebecca Nurse and Giles Corey, and that is at the time sort of how that all kind of spooled out. Today, though, it continues to dominate, oddly, in sort of modern culture. It is going to get a second life, as it were. In 1953, Arthur Miller, the playwright, writes a play called The Crucible. 
And Arthur Miller is very clearly reacting not just to what was happening in Salem in the 1690s, but also what is happening to the artist community in the 1950s. This is the play is meant and is very obviously a critique and rebuke of McCarthyism, of the Red Scare. And he's sort of using the play, this sort of hysteria, uh, as a very pointed critique of what he and a lot of artists are experiencing at the hands of people who are accusing them of being communists and communist sympathizers. Arthur Miller actually, uh, in an interview close to when the play sort of debuts, talks about though paying a visit to Salem in the early 1950s and feeling sort of like at that point that most people weren't that interested in the trials, that as he wandered around, there wasn't a lot of evidence. If you've been to Salem today, it's a huge part of the dynamic and culture of Salem. It's why many people go. But Miller sort of wandering around this, this old New England town and just sort of like, hey, something bad happened here and there's not much much to acknowledge it. And so I just wanted to sort of put that out there in a reminder too, if you've been to Salem recently, there's so much around the witch trials, but that was not true in the middle of the 20th century. And so he really does give it when I say, when you say new life, I mean, he brings it back into the forefront out of people who might glance at it in a history book and people go, oh my gosh, this is a crazy thing that happened. Yeah, he really puts it on the map, so to speak, in more ways than one. Uh, he makes this into a very, like, it's a very important aspect of what happens in colonial Massachusetts. The critique that he's making of McCarthyism is really spot on. That's the sort of genius of the play. Uh, the play is really excellent. It's been made into several different movies. And today this dominates the town of Salem. It is Halloween central in Salem. There's a museum, there's the town green, Gallows Hill. It's all like they have made learned how to make the witch trials pay uh, in, a, in a very real way. It's sort of their, their tourist hook, which, you know, good for them. On the 300th birthday, Ellie Wiesel, who's the famous Holocaust survivor and uh, religious historian, he is going to dedicate the local memorial. And today, Salem has a witch museum. All the restaurants are all have to do with witches. It's all that the town has a very clear and defined theme. Uh, Halloween and the sort of entire October experience dominates tourist traffic in Salem. That's where kind of Salem is today. But that is the Salem Witch Trials. And it is deeply interesting, deeply misogynist, a lot of misogyny all the time. <laughs> I think like most people, my first real um, connection to the, the witch trials came from the crucible, watching it, reading it. I was Elizabeth Proctor in my high school's production Ooh. of the crucible, right? It's something that I think a lot of young people get exposed to. And it's so beautifully written as a critique of the present moment, but it is also, while not a pure piece of history, there are definitely conflations, particularly in terms of how the trials play out in the judges. He really does Miller tap into so much of, I think, what you brought clear in this episode of the kinds of people that are being accused, who is being marginalized in this, who holds the power. It's even though not a perfect piece of historical recreation, it really is very good at being about the present moment, but also being a good encapsulation of what happened in the 1690s. Um, if you want a really fun, weird sort of like lens, I was trying to think of the right word, lens to look at this through, definitely check out a movie called I Married a Witch, which is Veronica Lake and Frederick March. And the conceit of the movie is that Lake was one of the witches burned in Salem centuries ago, and she has come back to haunt the descendants of a Puritan. 
<laughs> it is, it is deeply silly in terms of a concept, but really, really fun. And it predates the crucible. And so it's less interested in what actually happened in the witch trials and more so like, Hey, your ancestors burned me. Um, so I'm here to, I'm here to haunt you, but, Oh, we might fall in love too. Yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so it's a deeply silly movie, but I'll throw that out there. And then more contemporarily, um, I think most people our age know most, well, you know, most geriatric millennials know mm -hmm. that Salem is where Hocus Pocus was filmed. And yes. that's a huge part of the pop culture is yes. sort of a play on that too, as well. Um, and I have to say, I assume Hocus Pocus 2 was filmed there too, but hasn't come out yet. So we'll have to find out. And there's several, at least one relatively modern version of uh, movie version of the uh the crucible yes with um how can his name escape me in this moment <laughs> his famous actor daniel day lewis daniel day lewis the son-in-law in fact of arthur miller who wrote the play <laughs> because life comes back and in fact arthur miller's daughter who's married to daniel day lewis his her name is rebecca yay okay so that's that um, and so that's Salem Wish Trials, and it's really deeply exciting and fascinating and spooky, and I hope that you all have a spooky October. And we will be back with something that's not quite spooky, but definitely macabre uh, towards the end of the month. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Excellent. Thank, Thank you, you guys so much. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks, guys. Bye. Tour Guide Tell All is hosted by Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner and produced by Candon Arseniega with editing assistance by Dan King. We're all tour guides with DC by Foot in Washington, DC. Check us out at dcbyfoot.com. Find out more about the podcast and upcoming and past episodes on social media at Tour Guide Tell All on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to hear more from us, become a patron. Early access to all episodes and special patron-only episodes each month. Patron support helps us keep the podcast going. So thank you to all our patrons, and we'll see you next week.